section twenty two of a history of our own times volume two by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter twenty six where was lord palmerston part three the king of prussia was the elder brother of the present german emperor had the latter been then on the throne he would probably have taken some timely and energetic decision with regard to the national duty of prussia during the impending crisis right or wrong he would doubtless have contrived to see his way and make up his mind at an early stage of the european movement it is by no means to be assumed that he would have taken the course most satisfactory to england and france but it is likely that his action might have prevented the war either by rendering the allied powers far too strong to be resisted by russia or by adding to russia an influence which would have rendered the game of war too formidable to suit the calculations of the emperor of the french the actual king of prussia however went so far with the allies as to lead them for a while to believe that he was going all the way but at the last moment he broke off declared that the interests of prussia did not require or allow him to engage in a war and left france and england to walk their own road austria could not venture upon such a war without the co-operation of prussia and indeed the course which the campaign took seemed likely to give both austria and prussia a good excuse for assuming that their interests were not closely engaged in the struggle austria would most certainly have gone to war if the emperor of russia had kept up the occupation of the danubian principalities and for that purpose her territorial situation made her irresistible but when the seat of war was transferred to the black sea and when after a while the czar withdrew his troops from the principalities and austria occupied them by virtue of a convention with the sultan her direct interest in the struggle was reduced almost to nothing austria and prussia were in fact solicited by both sides of the dispute and at one time it was even thought possible that prussia might give her aid to russia this however she refrained from doing austria and prussia made an arrangement between themselves for mutual defence in case the progress of the war should directly imperil the interests of either and england and france undertook in alliance the task of chastising the presumption and restraining the ambitious designs of russia mr kinglake finds much fault with the policy of the english government on which he lays all the blame of the severance of interest between the two western states and the other two great powers but we confess that we do not see how any course within the reach of england could have secured just then the thorough alliance of prussia and without such an alliance it would have been vain to expect that austria would throw herself unreservedly into the policy of the western powers it must be remembered that the controversy between russia and the west really involved several distinct questions in some of which prussia had absolutely no direct interest and austria very little let us set out some of these questions separately there was the russian occupation of the principalities in this austria frankly acknowledged her capital interest its direct bearing was on her more than any other power it concerned prussia as it did england and france inasmuch as it was an evidence of an aggressive purpose which might very seriously threaten the general stability of the institutions of europe but prussia had no closer interest in it austria was the state 
most affected by it and austria was the state which could with most effect operate against it and was always willing and resolute if needs were to do so then there was the question of russia's claim to exercise a protectorate over the christian populations of turkey this concerned england and france in one sense as part of the general pretensions of russia and concerned each of them separately in another sense to france it told of a rivalry with the right she claimed to look after the interests of the latin church to england it spoke of a purpose to obtain a hold over populations nominally subject to the sultan which might in time make russia virtual master of the approaches to our eastern possessions austria too had a direct interest in repelling these pretensions of russia for some of the populations they referred to were on her very frontier but prussia can hardly be said to have had any direct national interest in that question at all then there came distinct from all these the question of the straits of the dardanelles and the bosphorus this question of the straits which has so much to do with the whole european aspect of the war is not to be understood except by those who bear the confirmation of the map of europe constantly in their minds the only outlet of russia on the southern side is the black sea the black sea is save for one little outlet at its southwestern extremity a huge landlocked lake that little outlet is the narrow channel called the bosphorus russia and turkey between them surround the whole of the black sea with their territory russia has the north and some of the eastern shore turkey has all the southern the asia minor shore and nearly all the western shore close the straits of the bosphorus and russia would be literally locked into the black sea the bosphorus is a narrow channel as has been said it is some seventeen miles in length and in some places it is hardly more than half a mile in breadth but it is very deep all through so that ships of war can float close up to its very shores on either side this channel in its course passes between the city of constantinople and its asiatic suburb of scutari the bosphorus then opens into the little sea of marmora and out of the sea of marmora the way westward is through the channel of the dardanelles the dardanelles form the only passage into the archipelago and thence into the mediterranean the channel of the dardanelles is like the bosphorus very narrow and very deep but it pursues its course for some forty miles any one who holds a map in his hand will see at once how turkey and russia alike are affected by the existence of the straits on either extremity of the sea of marmora close up these straits against vessels of war and the capital of the sultan is absolutely unassailable from the sea close them up on the other hand and the russian fleet in the black sea is absolutely cut off from the mediterranean and the western world but then it has to be remembered that the same act of closing would secure the russian ports and shores on the black sea from the approach of any of the great navies of the west the dardanelles and the bosphorus being alike such narrow channels and being edged alike by turkish territory were not regarded as high seas the sultans always claimed the right to exclude foreign ships of war from both the straits 
the treaty of 1841 secured this right to Turkey by the agreement of the five great powers of Europe. The treaty acknowledged that the port had the right to shut the straits against the armed navies of any foreign power, and the Sultan, for his part, engaged not to allow any such navy to enter either of the straits in time of peace. The closing of the straits had been the subject of a perfect succession of treaties. The Treaty of 1809 between Great Britain and Turkey confirmed by engagement the ancient rule of the Ottoman Empire, forbidding vessels of war at all times to enter the Canal of Constantinople. The Treaty of Unkiarskalesi between Russia and Turkey, arising out of Russia's cooperation with the port to put down the rebellious movement of Muhammad Ali, the Egyptian vassal of the latter, contained a secret clause binding the port to close the Dardanelles against all war vessels whatever thus shutting Russia's enemies out of the Black Sea, but leaving Russia free to pass the Bosphorus, so far at least as that treaty engagement was concerned. Later, when the great powers of Europe combined to put down the attempts of Egypt, the Treaty of July 13, 1841, made in London, engaged that in time of peace no foreign ships of war should be admitted into the Straits of the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. This treaty was but a renewal of a convention made the year before while France was still sulking away from the European concert and did nothing more than record her return to it. As matters stood then, the Sultan was not only permitted but bound to close the Straits in times of peace, and no navy might enter them without his consent even in times of war but in times of war he might of course give the permission and invite the presence and cooperation of the armed vessels of a foreign power in the sea of marmora by this treaty the black sea fleet of russia became literally a black sea fleet and could no more reach the mediterranean and western europe than a boat on the lake of lucerne could do naturally russia chafed at this but at the same time she was not willing to see the restriction withdrawn in favor of an arrangement that would leave the Straits, and consequently the Black Sea, open to the navies of France and England. Her supremacy in Eastern Europe would count for little. Her power of coercing Turkey would be sadly diminished, if the war flag of England, for example, were to float side by side with her own in front of Constantinople or in the Euxine. Therefore it was natural that the ambition of Russia should tend toward the ultimate possession of Constantinople and the Straits for herself. But as this was an ambition the fulfillment of which seemed far off and beset with vast dangers, her object, meanwhile, was to gain as much influence and ascendancy as possible over the Ottoman government, and to make it practically the vassal of Russia, and in any case to prevent any other great power from obtaining the influence and ascendancy which she coveted for herself. Now the tendency of this ambition, and of all the intermediate claims and disputes with regard to the opening or closing of the straits, was of importance in Europe, generally as a part of Russian aggrandizement. But of the great powers they concerned England most, France as a Mediterranean and a naval power, Austria only in a third and remoter degree, and Prussia at the time of King Frederick William least of all. It is not surprising, therefore, that the two Western powers were not able to carry their accord with Prussia to the extent of an alliance in war against Russia, and it was hardly possible then for Austria to go on if Prussia insisted on drawing back. Thus it came 
that at a certain point of the negotiations prussia fell off absolutely or nearly so austria undertook but a conditional cooperation of which as it happened the conditions did not arise and the queen of england announced that she had taken up arms against russia in conjunction with the emperor of the french to the great majority of the english people this war was popular it was popular partly because of the natural and inevitable reaction against the doctrines of peace and mere trading prosperity which had been preached somewhat too pertinaciously for some time before but it was popular too because of its novelty it was like a return to the youth of the world when england found herself once more preparing for the field it was like the pouring of new blood into old veins the public had grown impatient of the common saying of foreign capitals that england had joined the peace society and would never be seen in battle any more mr kinglake is right when he says that the doctrines of the peace society had never taken any hold of the higher classes in this country at all they had never we may venture to add taken any real hold of the humbler classes of the working men for example the well-educated thoughtful middle class who knew how much of worldly happiness depends on a regular income moderate taxation and a comfortable home supplied most of the advocates of peace as it was scornfully said at any price let us say in justice to a very noble and very futile doctrine that there were no persons in england who advocated peace at any price in the ignominious sense which hostile critics pressed upon the words there was a small a serious and a very respectable body of persons who out of the purest motives of conscience held that all war was criminal and offensive to the deity they were for peace at any price exactly as they were for truth at any price or conscience at any price they were opposed to war as they were to falsehood or to impiety it seemed as natural to them that a man should die unresisting rather than resist and kill as it does to most persons who profess any sentiment of religion or even of honour that a man should die rather than abjure the faith he believes in or tell a lie it is assumed as a matter of course that any englishman worthy of the name would have died by any torture tyranny could put on him rather than perform the old ceremony of trampling on the crucifix which certain heathen states were said to have sometimes insisted on as the price of a captive's freedom to the believers in the peace doctrine the act of war was a trampling on the crucifix which brought with it evil consequences unspeakably worse than the mere performance of a profane ceremonial to declare that they would rather suffer any earthly penalty of defeat or national servitude than take part in a war was only consistent with the great creed of their lives it ought not to have been held as any reproach to them even those who like this writer have no personal sympathy with such a belief and who hold that a war in a just cause is an honour to a nation may still recognise the purity and nobleness of the principle which inspired the votaries of peace and do honour to it but these men were in any case not many at the time when the crimean war broke out they had very little influence on the course of the national policy they were assailed with a flippant and a somewhat ignoble ridicule the worst reproach that could be given to men like mr cobden and mr bright was to accuse them of being members of the peace society it does not appear that either man was a member of the actual organization 
Mr. Bright's religious creed made him necessarily a votary of peace. Mr. Cobden had attended meetings called with the feudal purpose of establishing peace among nations by the operation of good feeling and of common sense. But for a considerable time, the temper of the English people was such as to render any talk about peace not only unprofitable, but perilous to the very cause of peace itself. Some of the leading members of the Peace Society did actually get up a deputation to the Emperor Nicholas to appeal to his better feelings, and of course they were charmed by the manners of the Emperor, who made it his business to be in a very gracious humour, and spoke them fair, and introduced them in the most unceremonious way to his wife. Such a visit counted for nothing in Russia, and at home it only tended to make people angry and impatient, and to put the cause of peace in greater jeopardy than ever. Viewed as a practical influence, the peace doctrine as completely broke down as a general resolution against the making of money might have done during the time of the mania for speculation in railway shares. But it did not merely break down of itself. It carried some great influences down with it for the time, influences that were not a part of itself. The eloquence that had coerced the intellect and reasoning power of Peel into a complete surrender to the doctrines of free trade, the eloquence that had aroused the populations of all the cities of England and had conquered the House of Commons, was destined now to call aloud to solitude. Mr. Cobden and Mr. Bright addressed their constituents and their countrymen in vain. The fact that they were believed to be opposed on principle to all wars put them out of court in public estimation, as Mr. Kinglake justly observes, when they went about to argue against this particular war. In the cabinet itself there were men who disliked the idea of a war quite as much as they did. Lord Aberdeen detested war, and thought it so absurd a way of settling national disputes that almost until the first cannon shot had been fired he could not bring himself to believe in the possibility of the intelligent English people being drawn into it. Mr. Gladstone had a conscientious and a sensitive objection to war in general as a brutal and an unchristian occupation, although his feelings would not have carried him so far away as to prevent his recognition of the fact that war might often be a just, a necessary, and a glorious undertaking on the part of a civilized nation. The difficulties of the hour were considerably enhanced by the differences of opinion that prevailed in the cabinet. There were other differences there as well as those that belonged to the mere abstract question of the glory or the guilt of war. It soon became clear that two parties of the cabinet looked on the war and its objects with different eyes and interests. Lord Palmerston wanted simply to put down Russia and uphold Turkey. Others were specially concerned for the Christian populations of Turkey and their better government. Lord Palmerston not merely thought that the interests of England called for some check to the aggressiveness of Russia, he liked the Turk for himself. He had faith in the future of Turkey. He went so far even as to proclaim his belief in the endurance of her military power. Give Turkey single-handed a fair chance, he argued, and she would beat Russia. He did not believe either in the disaffection of the Christian populations or in the stories of their oppression. He regarded all these stories as part of the plans and inventions of Russia. He had no half-beliefs in the matter at all. The Christian populations and their grievances he regarded in plain language as mere humbugs.
he looked upon the turk as a very fine fellow whom all chivalric minds ought to respect he believed all that was said upon the one side and nothing upon the other he had made up his mind to this long ago and no arguments or facts could now shake his convictions a belief of this kind may have been very unphilosophic it was undoubtedly in many respects the birth of mere prejudice independent of fact or reasoning but the temper born of such a belief is exactly that which should have the making of a war entrusted to it lord palmerston saw his way straight before him the brave turk had to be supported the wicked russian had to be put down on one side there was lord aberdeen who did not believe any one seriously meant to be so barbarous as to go to war and mr gladstone who shrank from war in general and was not yet quite certain whether england had any right to undertake this war the two being furthermore concerned far more for the welfare of turkey's christian subjects than for the stability of turkey or the humiliation of russia on the other side was lord palmerston gay resolute clear as to his own purpose convinced to the heart's core of everything which just then it was for the advantage of his cause to believe it was impossible to doubt on which side were to be found the materials for the successful conduct of the enterprise which was now so popular with the country the most conscientious men might differ about the prudence or the moral propriety of the war but to those who once accepted its necessity and wished our side to win there could be no possible doubt even for members of the peace society as to the importance of having lord palmerston either at the head of affairs or in charge of the war itself the moment the war actually broke out it became evident to every one that palmerston's interval of comparative inaction and obscurity was well nigh over End of section twenty two